0: Well, alright guys, let's, uh, let's rein it in. Let's bring, on, let's bring the focus in. So guys, this is Don't Be a Joker. It's a class about character and having good character. So maybe you came in here feeling guilty, like I have a bad character, like I'm not that good of a person. But that's why you're here, alright? So we're going to teach you about godly character. And it's called Don't Be a Joker because in a deck of cards, a joker is like the wild card, right? It's a card that you can put it, usually in some rules, you can put it with any other card and it matches it. you put it with a two, it becomes a two. Put it with a seven, it becomes a seven. It doesn't have a solid, identifiable value in and of itself, right? So we're going to study, don't be that. Don't be shifty and conform to what everyone else thinks or whatever else does or whoever you're with. But what does it look like to have a solid, identifiable <coughs> character, no matter who you're around or who you're with? So that's what we're going to study out. And... Um, you know, God is a perfect example of that, because God says, I am who I am. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't change. But what we say is, I am what I want you to think I am. You know what I mean? Like, we change according to who we're with, but let's not do that. Let's have God character. And our base passage, if we're going to start here, and it's going to be our base passage, is going to be 1 Samuel 24. But there's 24 chapters of stuff that goes on that really helps put this into context. So I'm going to give about two or three minutes, hopefully, to summarize what's happened from the beginning of the book of Samuel all the way up to chapter 24. So Saul was anointed king of Israel, but, and also he was the first king of Israel. Like Israel didn't have a king. They had judges and leaders, things like that. And they were like, we want a king. We want a head person that we can say, he's our guy that's going to do stuff for us. But God's like, I'm your king. You don't need one. But they still cry out, so Saul is king. And uh, David goes and kills Goliath at a young age. Saul sees it and he goes, okay, who is this guy? Like, I need this guy to lead my army. Because if he can kill a giant, he can kill thousands of people while leading armies." army. So he puts David in a high rank of an army. David goes out and leads tens of thousands of people. He goes on war missions and he, he defeats other armies. And he gets more praise than Saul does. So Saul gets jealous of him. He's like, I'm the king. Like, I should be getting all this praise. Why is my servant getting more praise than me? So he gets jealous and uh, so David is playing the harp one time and Saul takes a spear, a javelin, and throws, it the, throws it at him. Saul, David does a little, a little dodge and misses it and runs away because Saul wants to kill him. Because he's like, this guy can't take more of my glory. Saul comes up with different elaborate plans to try to kill David. He says, hey, marry my daughter and hopes that the daughter can convince David to go to a war that he can't win so that he'll die in battle. Saul comes with all these things so that David can go away because Saul's concerned about himself. He's a bad man. And uh, David ends up marrying another daughter of Saul, who actually loves him for who he is and doesn't try to um, try to kill him. And uh, Jonathan and David have formed this great friendship. And Jonathan is warning David, "Hey, Saul's going to try to kill you. Saul's going to try to kill you. You got to, you got to go away. You got to go away." So Jonathan goes up to Saul, his father, and says, "Hey, make an oath, please, don't kill David. I care for him a lot. He's one of my best friends." And so Saul makes an oath to God, "I will not kill David. I promise." Breaks that oath again when David is playing the harp because David goes sweet. He's not going to kill me. He just throws another javelin at him. David dodges it, and at this time he's like, I got to get out of town. So David goes to his house like normal, escapes out of his window in his own home. His wife puts like pillows or, or straw, or whatever else, in the bed to make it look like he's still sleeping. But David goes escapes. Some army men come in the house and go, Where's David? And uh, but he's not there. And um, so there's a special feast going on at some point. A couple months later. That David needs to be a part of because he's still a commander of an army, but he's on the run. And uh, he's like, hey, look, I'm not going to be there, but Jonathan, you be my point guy. Like if Saul is mad that I'm not there, that means he still wants to go and kill me. But if he says, oh, that's fine, he's taking rest, then he doesn't want to kill me. So David waits in the field while Jonathan figures out if Saul wants to kill him. Saul ends up still wanting to kill him. So David decides, I have to leave. And he's a commander of an army, but he's escaping out of his house, hiding in a field. Like he should be the top here of Israel, but he's having to hide in fear because Saul's trying to kill him. Like that's, that's the most unfair thing. So he leaves his best friend. He leaves his hometown. He leaves the army head that he's leading just to run away because Saul's trying to unfairly kill this guy. That's only done what is right. And uh, eventually Saul goes out to hunt. Saul has to use the bathroom like we all do, but he goes in a cave. He's like, all right, let me go in this cave and relieve myself. And this is where we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 24. Saul's trying to kill David, and he he goes to relieve himself. Starting in verse 1. It says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En-Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way, a cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men went far back in the cave, and the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Because David was going to be the next king of Israel. And then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master. The Lord's anointed will lay my hand on him. For he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and he called to Saul, my Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. He said to Saul, why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers will come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud, You are more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him go away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you've treated me today. I know that you will surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul, and Saul returned home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. First point, crept up unnoticed. Who are you when you're alone?
1: So if we look back in um, verse 3, or starting in verse 4, it says, The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. So David was in a place where Saul couldn't see him. He was alone in a cave. And his men are like you have every opportunity to kill Saul right now. He's been treating you terribly. This is what you really wanna do. God has promised that that, he, like, that you'll have justice and so like, this is your chance. Um, and I think emotionally, that's probably exactly what David wanted to do, kill Saul. Like, he's been pursued, it's, he's been treated unfairly. Like, this seems like the perfect chance. Um, and so I think David had three choices. Three choices in this moment. Um, He could remain righteous and trust in God and trusting that he's not supposed to kill Saul right now. Um, He could give in to his fleshly desires um, and kill Saul because no one was watching, so there couldn't be any consequences, right? Um, Or he could... Or what he ultimately did, which was feel somewhat guilty. Um, And so he did something that was wrong, but not totally wrong. So he could kind of justify his actions. Like, oh, I just cut off the corner of his robe, which was significant, but it wasn't killing him. So really I'm okay, right? Like no one really noticed, no one was here. Saul didn't know this was me, like I'm fine. Um, And so who are you when no one's watching? David was, he chose the wrong decision. Um, He didn't choose to kill Saul, but he chose to do something that ultimately hurt his conscience. He knew that he was wrong. Um, And so to have integrity um, is to live undivided. It comes from the word integer, which means the whole. So a person's whole life is the same, consistent through and through. Um, A person of integrity is the same person in every circumstance and situation. Um, So the same person that is in private is in public. Um, So with these people, what you see is what you get. What they say at church or when they're around their disciple friends is the same person that they are when they're home alone, when they're with their non-disciple friends. Um, Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. When we give in to our sinful desires and compromise on convictions when we're alone... Again and again, it becomes our character. And we know we see David's character was uh, a man after God's own heart. We see that this wasn't something he consistently gave into. And, and so when he gives in, we're going to talk about how he dealt with that. But this wasn't his character. Um, but our character becomes sinful. Like we become a person without integrity when we give in to. Satisfying what our sinful nature desires again and again when we're alone. Because when we're alone, we feel like there's no consequences. No one's going to call me out on this. No one's going to hold me accountable to this. Like, maybe we forget that God is always watching and we're just like, well, we can just do what we want because, like, my group leader isn't here. My ministry leader isn't here. They don't know what I'm doing, so no consequences. Um, and it's, it's just so easy to do that, I think, um, when we're alone. Um, we think, oh, we've had a hard day, and all my friends in the dorm are getting drunk, and there's no disciples around. I don't live with disciples, so I can just go ahead and do this, and there won't be any consequences. No one's here to call me out. Or those shameful sins that are done in private when we're home alone or at night in our rooms, and those desires like lust and impurity, those things that we don't want to talk about and are usually done in private. Um, no one's going to call me out if no one sees it. Um, and even who we are at home with our roommates or with our families, um, like, are we treating our roommates um, with respect and are we serving them or loving them? Um, are we treating our family that way like Jesus would? Or do we think, when I go home, this is my time to just check out. I'm home. I, this is my relaxation time. I can just do what I want. My roommates are there, but like, that's not my responsibility, it's not my responsibility to serve them because I'm not in disciple mode right now, I'm in me mode, I'm relaxing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think um, when we're alone, that's who we truly are. Right. Like who we are when no one is watching is what we would do what we our heart desires to do. Um, and when we value what we value and when we value other, other people's opinions more than God's opinion um, then where we've built our foundation on sand. Um, and when we're away from those opinions, we're going to just fall on our face and, and give in to sin because we don't have any basis for why we wouldn't. Um, and that happens when um, when we're alone and we have weak character. Um, I think we have to be deeply rooted in our word because otherwise we're not going to know what God desires for us. And if we're constantly getting our convictions based on what other people... Um, see or tell us, or what our parents have said, or what our ministry leaders have said, um, then that's a really shaky foundation, because as soon as they're not there, we're just going to give in to our own emotions and our own opinions. Um, Our righteousness has to come from the Bible. Um, And yeah, as soon as temptation gets strong and no one is watching, that's when we give in, when our foundation is not in the Bible. A person of strong character remains faithful even when there's no chance of them being glorified for their actions. Um, I think when we're alone, we don't have anyone telling us, you did awesome, like, you really, like, fought Satan in that moment, or, or you're, you were so spiritual in that thought that you had, because no one was there to see it. So I think if we, if, if God is not who we're trying to glorify, then, and we're trying to glorify ourselves, then why stay faithful when no one's, when no one's there to say anything about it? Amen. Amen. Um, and so when we're alone, it's just you and God. And no one can walk that walk for you. Like, you have to fight for your relationship with God, and that means having a true relationship with God that does not involve other people and does not involve that input that you get from people um, in your life. Um, so what will you choose to do with your time um, when you're alone? Revelation 3.1 says, To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And I think he's talking about a group of people who lacked integrity. They were mindful of keeping up their reputation um, in the eyes of people, uh, maybe in their fellowship, in their body, um, in the body at church. Um, But when it came to nurturing their relationship with God, they were were dead. Um, And integrity is not just about fighting sin when you're alone. Um, It's also your personal walk with God. Um, Some of us, I think, are really good at worshiping really passionately or sharing our faith before Bible talk when we're with people in the ministry that are encouraging us to do that. Um, We're having these deep prayers when we're asked to pray in front of um, the ministry, but then we neglect to have our quiet times or share our faith on our own um, or pray continually about things that are causing us anxiety in life. Um, I think... (laughs) For me i grew up in the church and that makes it that made it really hard for me to have integrity because i was so used to going to church every sunday and having my friends at in my team ministry and having my friends at school and being two completely different people um because i wanted like to win the approval of my friends at church who were disciples and so i knew exactly what it meant um, for them to Want. Like I knew what they wanted from me, and I knew what my parents wanted from me, and what my ministry leaders wanted from me, and I also knew what my friends at school wanted from me, um, and so that is a really hard habit to break when that's the way that you've grown up your whole life. And so, uh, even coming into college, like, and and now just into life, it's so hard to fight that and to fight that desire. And um, for me now, maybe that doesn't look as much like this outward sin, but it looks like you know being in leadership and having. Um, these opportunities to study the Bible with people and share my faith with people and, and teach lessons and, and talk about things that are really impactful to people and share my heart in front of people and then just be like, well, when I go home, I can turn off ministry mode and I can just be relaxed and not have to think about things. Um, and so I think that's where, um, for, people, for those of us that grew up in the church, it's really hard to not have that mindset um, because we're so used to that performance-driven faith. Um, and it's not about performance. God doesn't want our performance. He doesn't want us to look really spiritual on Sundays or have these really powerful messages. He wants our heart and our heart comes when we're alone, when we are digging into the word and we're letting it impact us and we're not thinking, oh, that lesson would be really good for somebody else or, um, or I'll say, I'll spend my quiet time thinking about like how I can like do this Bible study to look really spiritual for these other people, but Spending that time, like digging into our own hearts, and um, women were just talking about vulnerability. I think that was so key. It's like we have to be vulnerable with God, because, and we have to be vulnerable with people, because that's that's what integrity is. Integrity is when we show, like who we are, is who we are through and through, and that doesn't mean putting up a front when we're not doing well. Um, and so I think we have to. We have to really evaluate are we being a master of keeping up our reputation like do people know us for our reputation but really in reality we're dead like that's a really scary place to be um and i think like i think about coming to college so i grew up in the church in triangle north carolina in raleigh um and then i moved to college in south carolina and i didn't know anybody i had like a couple people i knew from camp but like Really, realistically, like, if I had wanted to, like, just kind of disappear, I could have. Like, I didn't, I moved into a dorm where I lived with a non-disciple, and there was no other, there was one other girl living on campus, but we didn't know each other. She was from Ohio, so at the time we didn't know each other, and so it was so easy just to be like, well, my friends in my dorm are more, having more fun, it seems like, they're, they're wanting to connect with me more than the ministry is, and do I really want to have to sacrifice this much? Because college, it's hard. Being in college and living on campus and being a disciple is hard. And so that really tested my faith on, am I really rooted in my convictions? Because it's my my convictions. Because when I was alone, then I was like, mm, do I want to have my quiet time? No one really knows me to check in on it. Or do I want to go to church? Because if I don't show up, no one's going to check in on me. And no one knows me here. Um, and so I think that that time really challenged me to my core because I had to choose that I had to choose God every day because I believed that it was true for me and not because it was true for other people um, or because I wanted to win the approval of other people. It became all of a sudden my relationship with God was not about other people; it was completely about me, and that was really difficult. Um, growing up in the church, I think especially, um, and those consequences for the sin—like if I if I had chosen to give in. To sin, And when I do choose to give in to sin when I'm alone, those consequences don't go away. Like if I had chosen to not read my Bible or to not go to church or to go get drunk with my friends in my dorm or whatever it was that I was tempted by, like just because no one was there to call me out on it did not mean that the consequences eternally were not there anymore. Like just because we're alone, like we still have to deal with the consequences of our sin. Um... And we see that even David had to deal with the consequences of his sin. He crept up unnoticed, but his conscience was still there. And he still knew, I wronged God in this. Um, and he still had to deal with the outcome. So okay. Yeah, There is a,
0: almost nothing scarier than being told your reputation is better than your character. That's a scary verse. Uh, look over 1 Samuel 24 and verse 5. second point is conscious stricken. So it says in verse 5, uh, afterward, David was conscious stricken for having cut off the corner of his robe. We all know that feeling of like, right after you sin, you're like, oh my gosh, I know what I did. Like, I know that was wrong. Or like, you come, you come back from retreat and you're thinking and you're like, I was so prideful the whole time. Like, I was just thinking about, like, do I look good? Like, who am I with? Am I? Like, we know that feeling when we recognize our sin, right? But how do you deal with it? What do you do afterwards? And honestly, is your character strong enough to recognize that you've sinned? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Good. So in Genesis, God made everything perfect for his creation. He breathed life into them. He allowed, he allowed Adam to name every single animal. Like and, and when he made Eve, he said, you guys have dominion over everything. The I was gonna say birds in the sea. The, uh, <laughs> the birds in the air, the fish in the sea, you know, actually like uh, uh, shrimp and things like that, they're just basically sea bugs, so it's on it. So fish could be basically be like water birds, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> so it more birds, water birds. <laughs> or birds are just like air fish, whatever, <laughs> no, 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 no. But either way, yeah, sky fish. He made the sky fish and he said, you guys have dominion over the sky fish. He, he crafted Eve, he said he crafted Eve to be suitable for him. Like, if it would have been you, if you were Adam, he would have made a wife suitable for you. Like, he made everything perfect for Adam. You know, they used to go on on walks in the cool of the day in the garden. Like, we think we get to go on prayer walks with God like we think we do. You know, we're talking to God, we're praying. But, like, that's us praying to God and he's listening and translating through the Spirit. But they literally went on walks with God in the cool of the day in the perfect garden where everything was right. They had everything given to them. But one compromise messed it up. Mm-hmm. One character flaw ruined literally the world. Let's, let's read about that in uh, Genesis 3 8 through 12. Skyfish. <laughs> I got it right there. Anyway, uh, Genesis 3 8. Says The man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He was ready to go on another walk. Adam and Eve, let's go. Come on, let's walk. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me, so I ate it. Adam's response was, I was afraid, so I hid. And God asked, like, where are you? But I don't think that God didn't know where they were, right? Like God, God knew exactly where they were, He knew exactly what they had done. He meant like I made you to be next to me, I made you to be right here by my side, walking with me. Like, why are you not here? Where are you? That is what it meant. And his response to his sin, because they knew they sinned, because they heard God and they were conscious stricken and they were like something like, oh my gosh, he's here. We gotta run. And so they hid in a bush because they were afraid. They were driven by their guilt. They weren't driven by, yeah. by a strong character. If they had a strong character, they would have gone, hey, God, let's walk. I messed up. Um, you know, I, I ate some of the fruit. I, like, you know, it, it was totally my fault. Like I, the serpent said to do it, but I, I gave in. That was me. Mm-hmm. But they were guided by their guilt. Is your character compromised to where you feel like you can do anything you want as long as you don't feel guilty? Mm-hmm. Like, Is the law of your actions dictated by guilt? Like, yeah, I can go a couple days without a quiet time, and it's okay because I'll just, I'll just make it up on Saturday when I'm free and I have no class. Like, that's cool. Like, that's you being dictated by your guilt rather than go, you know what? I haven't had quiet time in a few days. Hey, can you help me out? Can you, can you check up on me, make sure I'm, I'm, I'm spending time with God? But you're too afraid to f- confront your guilt so you make an excuse of, of why you're running away. Oh, let me just do it on Saturday. That works out because, yeah, I, I can have a really long quiet time on Saturday. Makes up for all the times I miss. You're guided by your guilt. You know, and also what's scary is you can sin and not feel guilty. You can have a point in your character where your character is flawed to where you don't even recognize your sin. Like, you know, prideful people don't recognize they're prideful, right? That's sort of the definition. Like, you don't understand that you're prideful. You need someone else to go, you know, when you did that, well, when you acted this way, like you were kind of doing that because you wanted to look good. You don't immediately recognize it. Is your character willing to have people confront you? Or are you just going to be guided by your guilt? Only a godly character can can do that. Only having a godly character is willing to confess and to be humble, not guided by your guilt. Adam cared more about his reputation than he did about his character. Because he's like, what will God think of me? Will he rip me away from the garden? Will he not let me you know, live for eternity? Will, will he punish me in some way? Like, like what's going what's gonna to happen to me? He cared more about what God thought of him. When honestly, God's the only one that can help him. It's kind of funny how we run away from God when we sin. It's like God's literally the only one that can help you not to sin again. But why do, why do we run from him anyway? And in, in our case, it's like, oh my God, will my parents find out? Like, what will my ministry leader think of me? Will they not let me date that girl if they figure out what I'm actually doing? Like are are they gonna rip me away from leading a Bible talk? Am I gonna feel embarrassed? That's all the excuses we make. Because we run and we hide and we're not willing to face our sin. And sometimes we're too afraid to be found out that we're being fake so that we be even more fake so that we aren't found out that we're fake. You know what I mean? It's like, if you're fake, that's okay. Wherever you are, that's okay. As long as you don't stay there. So if you have a compromised character, you've been messing up, you've been hiding, you've been running away. You know, that's what it is. That's where you've been. That's okay. As long as you don't stay there. As long as you say, you know, let me come out of the tree. God, this is what I've done. This is who I am. I've messed up. Can you help me? And that is a godly response. And Delaney's going to talk more about that. Go. go, Delaney. So you guys can
1: go to the beginning to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 through 11. Um, yeah, so what Jake was describing was worldly sorrow. Um, just that being sorry that you got caught um, and ashamed. Um, but the Bible talks about godly sorrow, and that is the appropriate response to knowing that we messed up. Um, So starting in verse 10, it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So godly sorrow is like we said, not being sorry that you got caught, but... Really being heartbroken at realizing what your sin has done to God. Um, We we should care more about that, about that our sin put Jesus on the cross, than about what that means for our reputation. Um, Or the worldly consequences. Like if if I confess this sin and I get open about it, then that might mean that people don't trust me as much to lead. Or that might mean that I have to suffer uh, whatever consequence. Maybe my friends don't trust me anymore. Whatever. I think like, we have to care more about, no, I hurt God and I need to get right with God before, well, I don't want to hurt my reputation. And if people's opinions of you matter more than what God thinks of you and more about more than your desire to reconcile with God, then you need to reevaluate because that's not repentance. And this scripture is radical and countercultural. Nobody wants to confess it. No one wants to share and be open about things that they're ashamed of. Nobody wants to have to say, I messed up and I did something to hurt you. Or I was impure in my thinking. Or I... Whatever. Like, anything. Sin is shameful. And nobody wants to be open about it. Um, And that's why this is so radical. Repentance is radical. Um... I think, I think about David, um, back in that story in, um, 1 Samuel 24, um, as soon as he was conscious stricken, um, he, first of all, rebuked his men and said, why, like, why did you lead me into this? Um, and why would you think that this was okay? Um, and then he went out and told Saul what he had done. He confessed to Saul, like, I, I have, I have cut your cloak. I, I've, um, disappointed the Lord, and um, and that was so impactful to Saul, um, to the point that later he says that Saul is um, really just cut by that. I um, mean, he tells me, "You're more righteous than I. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly." Um, repentance brings reconciliation, um, and Saul was, or David was able to reconcile in this with Saul, and um, but. But it was because he was open about his sins so immediately. He didn't let it build up. He didn't try to cover it up and hide it. Um, he realized that what he had done was wrong. He was eager to clear himself and eager to see justice done. He cared more about reconciling with God than he did about what will Saul think of me or what will my men think of me for going back and maybe I'll look weak to them because I didn't go through with what they were saying I could do in this moment Um, He didn't care about any of that. He cared about, I've disappointed God, and I need to go make this right. Um, One of the most impactful stories I've ever heard, um, so uh, there was a woman um, in the church that I grew up in that was studying the Bible, and she had, I guess, like, a warrant out for her arrest or something like that. Like, she had some charges against her. Um, And so she was studying the Bible and reading about repentance and was like, I am running from the police in this, or I've kept this hidden, um, but there was, like, I, I need to be open about this, and she turned herself in, and she served a couple years in prison, and that, like, could she have just confessed to the, to the women in her Bible study and, um, and maybe felt okay about that? Probably. But she was so eager to see justice done and eager to clear her name. Like, she was like, I want to be completely right with God, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to be, to radically repent. Um, and so she s- saw her consequences all the way through. And she um, ended up, we started a Bible talk, and now there's a, prim- a women's prison ministry in Triangle. And on, I just, it. like, that is so impactful because God blesses radical repentance. Yeah. Not only with seeing the fruit of your repentance and seeing the fruit of your life because you've been so open with God, but our salvation. We don't get salvation if we don't repent. And well. repentance is not feeling sorry and feeling guilty and just doing it again. It's not like being a kid and crying because you're going to get a spanking, but then just doing the same thing again the next day. Like repentance is doing the complete opposite of what you've done to hurt God.
0: Point three and last point is more righteous than I. That's verse 17 in 1 Samuel 24. When uh, when David can, uh, or he doesn't confront, he walks out and admits, "Hey Saul, like this is what I did. He, like I'm guiltless. Like what have I done for you to come kill me? All these things." He's talking to Saul, and then Saul's convicted, and he goes, "Wow, you are more righteous than I am. Because living with a godly character is your access to a powerful life. Because you can't live a powerful life with a bad character, but you can live a powerful life." With a godly character. Saul was humbled before David because David acted with a godly character. He was upfront, he was eager to clear himself, and evil noticed it. Like, if you, if you submit yourself to righteousness, evil will bow itself to you because it has no power over righteousness. So, if you choose a godly character, evil will notice that and submit to you because it can't compare to godly. Right? Do you guys want a character to where people stand in awe and go, you are righteous? Not out of self-righteousness or make yourself feel good, but doing what's righteous, people will notice it. So how do we get that character? Let's turn over to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, I'm going to read 22 through 26, or 25. So godly character comes from a willingness to examine yourself. And I don't know about you, but I don't really relate to the first part of the scripture, or the middle part, really. Well, it says like you look in a mirror, you go away, and you forget what you look like. I don't know about you, but I don't forget what I look like. I know my hairstyle. I know what I, you know. I, I know how I look. Like uh, and I know where to go if if I feel like I don't look well. I know where a mirror is, and I go and I and I fix myself. Like even. Even for this retreat, I forgot to bring a contact case because I wear contacts. Ooh. Like I don't know, <laughs> I don't know if you wear, con- or who wears contacts, and if you've slept in them. But it's it's not fun to sleep in your contacts. It's your eyes are all dry. You wake up and there's crust and goo. I don't even know why about we- something about wearing contacts and sleeping in them, having your eyes closed. It does that to you. So you wake up. I woke up this morning. There's goo everywhere. You know, but I knew, it's okay. I knew exactly where to go. I went to the bathroom. I got a mirror, and and I got it all the way. And you need a mirror for that. I could have just, oh, I think someone's over here and over there, and not know what I looked like. And then you guys would have made fun of me, like, why is it all crusty? I mean, his eyes are all oh, like But I knew exactly where to go. I knew, you, know, <laughs> you guys are probably like, you, your eyes are crusty up there. Like, what are you talking about? But uh, maybe I didn't look intently enough. But I knew exactly where to go. I was willing to examine myself. And I was like, you know what? Let me get, let me get this, uh, this goo out of my eye. Uh, but guys, let's be real. We know exactly how we look. Not only do we know exactly how we look, we plan for how we look. Like you, most people, I don't know, I don't really care about what I wear too much, but a lot of people do. They're like, oh, we're going to a co retreat, so let me bring this scarf, because it kind of matches with this shirt that I have, but I also buy these new shoes, so I have these pants that kind of go well with that. You know what I mean? Like you plan your outfits according to the weather, and honestly, according to who's gonna be there. You know, you're like, oh, there's this there's this sister that's gonna be there. So okay, I gotta I gotta make sure I look really nice. So let me go. I, I bought this new shirt, and I got this like I got this cute beanie I'm gonna wear because it goes well with the shoes that I got. Like, and okay, where's she at? There, there she is. All right, girl, look. You know what I mean? Like we do that. Friend. Or then there's there's hey, there's the guy we've been talking about. You know what I mean? So like, all right, I right, talk to you. Like pretend I'm busy. You know, we're like we do so much because we care about how we look like, and we know exactly how we look like. Like most of us don't just wake up and go, "My hair is what it is," and let me walk out. We do something with it, right? <laughs> because you're like, I know how it looks when I wake up after a good night's sleep, and it's it's there and it's here and it's everywhere, and uh, you know, you you're you're aware of that stuff. You know how you look, and you care about it, right? If you uh, you know, you do care about how you look. We know every. Wrinkle, freckle, pimple, hair, how it sits, when it's nice, when it's not, we know everything about our face. We stand two inches away from the mirror going, yeah, okay, that's, you know, there's that, and let me fix this. We know exactly how we look. But how is your character? Do you know every wrinkle and freckle and pimple and hair of your character? Do you stand in front of the biblical mirror and take all the crust out and the goo? Or do you just wake up and go, ah, I know I got some goo. Let me just wipe it off. Let me just, let me just pray real quick and then go for it. Or do you examine yourself? Do you go to the mirror and say, I need to have good character. Let me go fix myself. You know, you guys do two-minute face scrubs and cleansing routines and all that sort of stuff to make sure you look nice. But do you do a character cleansing routine? Do you have like a Bible scrub time where you make yourself character-wise look nice? Or do you, do you do that just for your appearance rather than your character? It says look intently into the law and that will give you freedom. You know you have a bad character. You know you're prideful. You know you're selfish. You know you're impure. That's why we're, that's, that's why we're here. That's why we're at this class. But that's why we're also at Okohe. So we can fix those things. But the only way to do that is to look intently into the Scripture, and that will give you freedom. And it's not even that hard. It just says, look into the law and go do it. It's not complicated. It's just costly. So let's, let's hit an end with some small practicals. Turn to Luke 16. And I was kind of thinking about it. I was like, you know, you could probably take your, your cleaning routine that you do and make a biblical analogy of that. And then honestly might help you about, like, how do I fix my character? Mm. Like, you know, all right. I do, a, I do a face scrub. How can you do a Bible scrub? How does it, what does that look like? But anyway, Luke 16, 10 through 12. It says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? And this, honestly, it seems like it frustrates me because I want to do big, amazing things, but I ignore small things. I'm like, those are petty. Like, I don't need to do the baby things. Like, I just, I have a huge heart and I want to go do the big things But the Bible says, I will never do anything great if I can't do the very little things. I know that you guys want to have impact in this world, right? Yeah. Do your laundry. I know that we want to create change, right? Do the dishes. Andres, said, I don't like doing that though. (laughs) I know that you want your life to mean something. Yeah. Clean your room. Mm. And that's like the most unsatisfying answer I could give. Take it. But it's the most truthful answer I yeah. could give. Because it's hard to believe. But if you can't keep your house in order, how in the world do you think God's going to trust you to keep His people in order? Yeah. If you can't clean the dishes because you're lazy... Why do you think God would ask you to study the Bible and clean other people? Yeah? It's a small thing. But if you can't do that, you'll never do the big things. If you can't wash and fold your laundry, why do you think God would trust you to organize a Bible talk? You have to do the small things to be good at the big things. It's like... I want to run a marathon, I imagine myself, arms open wide, first place as I'm crossing the finish line, everyone's cheering for me, like, you could feel the adrenaline rushing as you think of it, and God's like, you can't even run a mile, you ain't never gonna do a marathon, you know, you're like, eh, my, my, my room's dirty, but I'm preparing for this, this awesome Bible study, I'm gonna be great, I'm gonna organize really well, I was like, man, you can't even clean your room. Like you can put all your energy into this Bible study, it will drain you, and you won't even be effective. But if you can do the little things, if you can build your character in small ways. You know what? When I cook, I'm gonna do my dishes and I'm let them dry. You know, I'm, I'm gonna have a day that I do my laundry, and I'm gonna do it every week without missing it. Because if I can, if I can be trusted with the little things, keep my house in order, keep my room in order, keep the dishes in order. God's going to allow me greater and greater things. And then He's going to trust me and say, you know what? Go lead that Bible time. You know what? You go lead that mission trip now. You know what? You go study the Bible with this person. You know what? You go lead this church. That's the only way that God's going to trust us to do those things if we do the small things with our character. So go after Godly character. Don't compromise. Confess and repent if you lapse in your character. Go clean yourself of un. Of any ungodly aspect of your character, look intently into God's law to see how to act. And do the small to accomplish the big. That's what we have for you guys. Thank you.